Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Harper Perennial, publisher of a novel called Drinking Closer to Home by Jessica Anya Blau. Steve Yarbrough, author of Safe from the Neighbors, raves, quote, Jessica Anya Blau has lavished such attention on these characters that I found it impossible not to care about them and equally impossible to forget them. She is a magnificent writer, and this is one special novel, end quote. And the great Madison Smart Bell says, quote, If you think you've read enough novels about mixed-up families already, go ahead and read one more. Jessica Anya Blau's Drinking Closer to Home is a phantasmagoric, hilarious carnival ride, end quote. You heard the man. It's a phantasmagoric, hilarious carnival ride. It's called Drinking Closer to Home. It's available from Harper Perennial. Go and get it. It's a book. You can read it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. My name is Brad Listy. Thank you. I just repeated basically everything you just heard in the intro to the show. I do that. There's the intro to the show with the music and the voice and then the woman's voice telling you who I am. And then I come on and I basically tell you everything that you just heard. I repeat it. So I apologize if that's odd, but that's what I do. Uh, very good show today. Jessica Anya Blau is the guest. She is the author of Drinking Closer to Home. She also wrote uh, her, a debut novel called The Summer of Naked Swim Parties. It won some awards. She's a very, very good guest. She's very candid. We discuss a lot of things. She was raised in Santa Barbara. And that, to me, is a great fascination because I can't think of any place more idyllic to be raised than Santa Barbara, California. Mountains, ocean, great weather, beautiful people, affluent. Who wouldn't want to be raised there? Parties on the beach in high school. We discuss that. We discuss a bunch of stuff. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, a couple of things on my mind here that I wanted to uh, share with you. The first is a book review by James Salter in the New York Review of Books. And it's a, uh, a review of a Hemingway biography, another one. There are a lot of these. I've read some of them. Hemingway is a fascination to me. He's kind of where I got my start. I feel like a lot of writers, a lot of male writers start with Hemingway. 
going back to high school, there were others. You know, Vonnegut was there. F. Scott Fitzgerald was there. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, blah, 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 blah. Like, there's a lot of them. But Hemingway was a big one for me. And there's this new book called Hemingway's Boat, Everything He Loved in Life and Lost, 1934 to 1961, by Paul Hendrickson. And James Salter is reviewing, and he uh, talks about, or part of the review uh, involves a uh, really interesting meeting of Hemingway and Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 1957. I actually knew about this. I had read this somewhere once. I've told this story to people. I believe I, I t- I've told it to uh, students of mine in classes I've taught in the past. And it's 1957. It's Paris. It's one of Hemingway's last times in Paris. Maybe it was his last time. It was close. One of his last times, I think. And he's in Paris. And he's walking down the Boulevard Saint-Michel. He's wearing old jeans and a lumberjack's shirt. That's what it says here. Uh, and he's walking down the Boulevard Saint-Michel. And on the other side of the street is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a young Gabriel Garcia Marquez working as a journalist. Hemingway is one of his heroes. He looks across the street. He sees Hemingway, the white-bearded Papa Hemingway, and uh, he's too shy to go up to him. And so he screams out across the street. He calls out, Maestro. And Hemingway raises a hand, and apparently he, he, he responded by saying, Adios, amigo. Kind of gave a wave and said, adios, amigo. So you have two Nobel laureates on opposite sides of the Boulevard Saint-Michel in Paris, you know, talking to one another. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez is essentially in, like, fanboy mode. So I like that story. I like little, like, twists of fate like that. I don't know, uh, I don't know any other ones quite like that, but I thought I would share that. It's a nice little moment, and it gets me thinking about the, the way that uh, the whole lost generation, I think more than any other generation of writers, they sort of wrote in a way that made you wish you could be where they were and made you wish you could have the kind of life that they had, the lives that they had, even though a lot of their lives were really actually pretty grim and riddled with things like, um, you know, deep psychological dysfunction and like horrific chemical abuse or whatever. But anyway, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about that period of time is that they had access to, uh, you know, the, the great capitals of Europe at a relative pittance because of the post-war years, the decimation of those economies, the, the rise of the American empire, the strength of the dollar, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to put it. But basically you could go over to Europe with almost no money and live relatively well for a long time. And so it got me thinking about today's world and how that doesn't really work anymore. It doesn't work at all. And I I started to do some research about what are the cheapest places in the world to live? Where can writers go and live with, you know, not much money? And this is the world that we live in now. You want to hear the top 10 places to live cheaply in the world? This is according to uh, some website. So who knows how, you know, accurate it is. But they seem to have done their research. I'm going to give you 10 of the cheapest places in the world to live. Ready? Here goes. Number 10. Dushanbe, Tajikistan. Number nine, Kampala, Uganda. Number eight, Tunis, Tunisia. Number seven, La Paz, Bolivia. Number six, Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Is that how you pronounce that? Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh? Uh, Number five, Colombo, Sri Lanka. Number four, Bhutan, Timpu. 
Number three, Tripoli, Libya. Who wants to go live in Tripoli? Number two, Nuku Alofa, Tonga. And number one, Sana'a, Yemen. Okay, can you see the can you see the next lost generation blooming anywhere in one of these places? It, I guess it could happen. You know, is there a scene? And this is the thing: by the time you hear about one of these places, it's already too late. You know, like I, by the time I heard about like Prague, I remember Prague was happening in like the '90s, Velvet Revolution, uh, the end of communism. Suddenly, Prague was cheap, and everyone was living there. I heard about it when it was already done, and then I went, and it wasn't quite as cheap. But it was still fairly cheap. And so I wonder right now, where are is there a hive of writers in Sana'a, Yemen? Is that happening right now? Are there expatriated writers who have figured this out and who are living in Yemen? Somehow I doubt it. Uh, one other thing that's crossed my screen and that I want to talk about, it has to do with Facebook. And there's this trend that it seems to be unfolding, seems to be regular, seems to be normal, seems to be part of the Facebook experience where people uh, kind of compulsively pronounce their love for their significant other on the anniversary of either their marriage or the beginning of their relationship or whatever it might be. But anniversaries tend to be celebrated publicly on Facebook in a way that they were not prior like I do remember, you know, people that you really know, that you're really close to, family members, maybe you know about their anniversary, you wish them a, ha a happy anniversary over the phone, you send them an email. But now in the age of social media and Facebook in particular, where people can write a, a little bit expansively about their their love for their significant other, th th this seems to be happening quite a lot. And I did this actually for the first time myself earlier this year. My wife and I together for four years, or married for four years, together for longer, but we were married for, we've been married for four years. And, uh, on our anniversary, I actually made a public pronouncement of my love for my wife, but I did it with sort of a wink. I did it knowing that doing it was sort of lame, or at least that's kind of how I hedged my bets. I felt like people would judge me for being lame. My friends might roll their eyes. I knew, I knew, I knew that my wife would roll her eyes. Uh, she's not one for internet attention. She doesn't like public attention generally. Uh, she's got kind of a Minnesota Scandinavian thing. They shy from large amounts of attention like that generally. And so I did it just sort of as a, a romantic gesture and sort of as a joke. And then I sort of felt weird about it and wondered what people actually thought. But I figure that in the grand scheme of things, there's worse things to do. I mean, and this is very common for me. I'll sit around analyzing a behavior like that when the behavior itself really doesn't merit that kind of attention, I'll fixate on whether or not pronouncing your love for somebody on your Facebook wall is a worthy behavior. And I'll spend like, you know, an hour just thinking about that. So anyway, I don't know if I'm the only one. I can't imagine that I'm the only one who's noticing this, how it's sort of a, uh, a meme. Is it a meme? Is that what a meme is? I like the word meme. And, uh, I think it would be funny to collect these things, to, to somehow form a compendium of public anniversary professions of love from people's Facebook walls, because people can get pretty uh, sappy. You know, people you know even, people you would think wouldn't be that sappy. Somehow you start typing on that Facebook wall, you start thinking about the general public reading it, you know, the Facebook public, the people in your network, whatever you want to call it, and suddenly 
the Purple Pros comes out. You know, five years ago on the corner of Main Street and Sullivan Avenue, we met at the lawn, you know, however it goes. But it's just like I find myself reading these things and I'm sort of uh, in a way touched, but also kind of revolted. It's like it's a combination of the two. And I think it's like a war between my cynical self and my romantic self. I don't want to be critical, and yet I want to mock. I should let love rule, but at the same time, that's ridiculous. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, anyway, I guess we should get on with the show. Today's guest, Jessica Anya Blau, the delightful Jessica Anya Blau. A great guest, very candid. I think you're going to really like this show. You're going to like hearing uh, this conversation because it meanders, it goes places. Jessica is one of those people with whom it is easy to talk. And she had this very eccentric childhood. She comes from this very eccentric family in Santa Barbara. She had a very interesting childhood. And uh, she writes about it beautifully. She talks about it beautifully, is very funny, and she's managed to kind of transform it into art that is uh, at once compelling and funny and moving and all the rest. So enough from me. Let me get out of the way and let this thing unfold. Please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Jessica Blau. I'm in a good spot. I'm in my bedroom. All right, good. Are you like are you like you relaxing? Like, give me a picture. Like you're you're just kind of like luxuriating, drinking. Ice <laughs> no, tea. I just walked. In. No, I'm. Uh, I was making the bed actually, and the bed is all rumpled and with pale blue sheets, and uh, you know, and there's air conditioning up here. I'm actually going to turn the air conditioning so it's cooler. All right. Um, are you a bed maker? Do you make your bed every day? You know, I do. You know, I grew up in this really messy house. Yeah. So are we recording this or are we chatting? Oh, we're recording. We're live. Oh, we're recording. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, so by, the I, way, by the way, I should say I'm talking to Jessica Anya Blau. Jessica Anya Blau or Jessica Blau to those of us who know her. Author of The Summer of Naked Swim Parties and Drinking Closer to Home. Both novels, both published by Harper Perennial. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. All right. Bedmaker? So, yeah. So, no. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in this incredibly messy house and... 
I mean, essentially my mother quit. So we had to, if we wanted anything clean or we wanted sheets or anything, we had to launder them ourselves. So I grew up in, on a bed with no sheets because I just didn't do the laundry. Or they'd get kind of kicked down to the bottom in a bunch and they'd stay like that for a year until my grandparents came to visit. So it was like, you know, so now things like that just make me insane. So, uh, you know, I always have like nice sheets on the bed and then I make the bed. Every day, I do too. Yeah. I do too, and like do this you? is yeah, and like this is the thing is that when I was a kid, I didn't live in a messy house. I will say this: like my my mom, we had a neat house, especially considering there were three kids, and you know that's that makes it difficult. But in my room, I would never make my bed, and I always had this logic: like it was like, well, why would you make your bed? You're just going to sleep in it again that night, like you know that kind of kid right. lo- that kid logic. Right. Uh, but now that I'm like sort of you know helping to run a household, I guess that's what I'm right. doing. I find myself fixated on keeping things neat and like maintaining because if you let it get away from you, then it just gets crazy quickly. Yeah. I mean, it feels like mess to me feels like chaos. Like to me, I, I feel like this a certain, if I walk in the house and it's just destroyed, it's like, I feel this feeling up my spine. This yeah. Like an, almost an anxiety. It's like, yes. I need, I need a, everything in order in order to feel peaceful. Yes. That's, and, but I, I'd say, okay, so I've had this conversation because my wife is uh, messier than I am, you know, and I'm always, uh-huh. I'm always yeah. like, I don't want to be OCD. I don't want to be like ridiculous about it. But like, I feel like if you keep your environment, like the, the space that you live in nice, it, right. that, that's a nice thing, right? I mean, I you, think it's a really nice thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, it's not like if you want things to be clean that suddenly like you're the the crazy husband in sleeping with the enemy, right? You know, like yeah. where like all the soup cans have to be facing a certain way. Like I'm not like that, you know? No, I mean, I just want a certain amount of order. Well, the problem, yes. Okay. The problem is, is I'm against a whole family who doesn't feel the same way. So it's me against everyone else in this house. And I'm the only neat one. So it's kind of a bummer. Do you think that you that's know? like, do you think that that's like uh, writer stuff? I mean, do you think that there's something like a component of the writerly personality that lends itself toward neatness? I mean, probably not. I mean, there, there are a lot of sloppy writers out there, right? Well, yeah, there are, but I, there's something about, like, having everything in order and having a clarity of space to have clarity of mind to write. Like, I don't have a place to write in the house. So I write in cafes, and I write on the dining room table. And if there's, like, stuff all over the dining room table, you know, mail and you know, whatever pe- thing people put down. Like before I can sit down and write, I have the dining room table has to be totally empty. And so there's this, so that in my line of vision, I'm not seeing any thinginess. Do you ever, do you ever like look at like, like an architecture digest or a, some, something, well, something like that, something like that, just like a, yeah. mag, a magazine, like every once in a while, like the New York times, they'll have like pictures of some like architectural masterpiece. And it'll be this house where like, you know, it's all glass and the, the floors are like polished concrete and there's like totally. almost no furniture in it and it's just like empty and I'm always like, that's where I want to live. <laughs> oh my God, are you kidding me? I want to live in a mausoleum. Yes. It's like I want flat surfaces with nothing on them. I, I want almost nothing around me and I want it just cool and just clear with glass and light. Yes. And it's kind of painful. For me. And it's like, so if I can't sleep at night and I wake up in the night, um, I mean, I used to wake up in the night, and you'd have, you'd think about sex or something. And, you know, I'd do that maybe like 30 minutes into insomnia. But the first 30 <laughs> minutes, I'm having house fantasies. I'm That's like it. redesigning the house and 
moving into a place with glass and light. Yes. Well, I like those houses in the woods and they're like, you know, they look like sort of like futuristic. Like that's kind of what I'm into at this point. And oh, my I God. didn't, I never yeah. used to think about that sort of stuff, but like, I guess like, especially maybe this is, maybe this is to tie it into writing. Like it's something like when you're a writer, you're always sort of fighting for space to work. Like a nice space to work is rare for writers right. and then you have a family and it's chaos and you have to like retreat to a cafe where it's chaos and you know you can't get out an outlet that's my thing about right. cafes you're just trying to plug your laptop in and it's like there's two tables that you can possibly have <laughs> yeah, and, i charge mine all night before but still the battery doesn't yeah. last very long i mean it's just like ugh, it's yeah. an endless stress so the idea of having some sort of you know retreat that's quiet and there's trees yeah. and you know that would be really great oh. I'm telling you, it's, it, you know, and my husband laughs, like, you know, I mean, he, he laughs at this, which is the only reason I could say it, but like some, you know, sometimes we'll just talk about dying or something. And I was telling him, like, listen, when you die, like after I call the coroner, I'm calling a dump truck and I'm like getting rid of all this shit. Like I'm moving all this shit out. Like I can't take it. And, yeah. you know, so you know, and then I ask him, well, what would you do when I die? And he, he says something really sweet. Like, I'd just be really sad and I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> You're like, I am going to haul your belongings out the day after. Your body will not even be cold. Oh, my God. He'll be like in rigor mortis on the couch where he died. And I will be like shoving shit out the door, like hauling it into the alleyway. I mean, I, oh, we shouldn't even talk about this, Brad. I mean, I'm telling you, this is my like... This is the thing in my life is living with all this shit when all I want is clarity and space and sunlight. So I went through I went through a, a phase, not even a phase. I just had a moment about you know a few weeks ago where I was like, I got to lighten my load. I got to get rid of stuff. And the first thing I did was, and I was like, and a part of it was rooted in wanting to kind of like create space and just get rid of stuff that I don't use. But the yeah. other part, the other part of it was like something. I think there was some sort of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, my God, cathartic, uh, philanthropic. I wanted to give stuff away that <laughs> yeah. I wasn't using. Like people should be using this. So right. The first thing I did was I went into my closet and I unloaded. I would say seventy percent of my clothes, which I don't wear. That's I didn't great. wear. I didn't wear. And so like my wife comes home and I just like had this like weird freak out. And I've got 70% of my clothes stacked in garbage bags uh, right. on the floor, like six six or seven garbage bags, like filled to overflowing with just clothes that I've been carrying with me for God knows how long. Right. And she comes home and she's like, are you know, are you suicidal? You know, like this is like a sign of like, you know, where you start giving, you start giving things away. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, like I just don't use it. I'm not going to wear it. And, and a lot of it was like nice stuff. Some of it was stuff that I just had never worn. Uh, right. Just like, you know how you do that. You like get a shirt and it's like, oh, I just, it's not quite right. And I have it. And it's, yeah. And so I was like, somebody... no, I do. I have the year. I have the year in my brain. I have all these rules. So one of them is if I buy something, I have to get rid of something. So if I buy a pair of shoes, I have to get rid of a pair of shoes. That's a good rule. Yeah. And it helps, but it's, it doesn't help anyone else. It's, I'm the only one who follows this rule. So I'm still living. <laughs> but somebody, then... somebody takes those shoes. I mean, do you give them to Goodwill or do you just chuck them? Yeah. Like yeah. right at the grocery store where I shop, there's like these huge bins that go to charities. And so I just draw, you know, I stick it in my trunk and then every, next time I go to the grocery store, I dump it in there. Right. And then if it's something big, I stick it at, you know, I'm on the East coast, so there's alleyways. So you stick it out in the alleyway within 30 minutes, somebody has driven by and picked it up. Well, that's good. So, yeah. So I do that. But the other rule I have is if I haven't worn it in a year, I get rid of it no matter how much it costs 
or how great I think it is. If I didn't use it in a year, it's gone. Yeah, that's another good it's, rule. Yeah, it's kind of painful sometimes. Like if you spend a lot of money on something and you think it's so great, but it's just not. Like you just, I just don't put it on for whatever reason. But you know, you it's got, you know, I'm trying to create order in my head somehow. So yeah, yeah I get to getting rid of the stuff. Well, I, okay, so I did that. I got rid of the clothes. It felt great. I haven't missed a single thread of those clothes. I haven't missed it at all. Right. And then the next thing I did was I went into my office and I filled up like four or five boxes full of books. And, oh. I, t- and I took those to Goodwill. And, yeah. you know, there are people who fetishize their books and they love their collection yeah. and they pet their books and they dust them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not a book fetishist. I'm not a book right. ob- book as an object fetishist. Right. Uh, meaning I don't mind reading a, a novel on my iPhone. I don't care. Like I can do it. Right. If the book is great, I love it. And I'm sitting there flipping on my phone. Um, right. I also love a print book. I mean, I, you know, there's a part of me that is sentimental about it, but not to the degree where, you know, I have to have like a, you know, a yeah. print book in order to be See, I have to, I have to do that. You're inspiring me because we have too many books in this house. Well, but it was like, okay, so the, part of it was clutter. Part of it was like, A, I'm not going to read this book. I own it. I'm not interested in reading it. I don't know why I have it. I don't even know how I got it. And and then, you know what I'm saying? Like you pick up books yeah. through the years. And then there are other books where it's like, I read it. It was okay. Great. And then there are the books that like I loved and like I'm going to, I want to keep because I love them and I right. want to potentially use them as reference books in some way. Or it's a book that I have and I have not yet gotten to that I want to someday read. And so you keep right. those. But then it was like, why am I hanging on to all these books? Many of which are great books. Uh, right. why am I like hoarding them on my shelf in some sort of weird way? Like, why should these things not be in circulation? Somebody can use this, you know, like in a, in a way that's, uh, active participation, you know, in the, in the near future. And yet I'm for some reason keeping this thing and it didn't make right. sense to me all of a sudden. And I got rid of those and I haven't missed those either. So how many boxes of books did you get rid of? Like five heavy. Like I had to get a, I had to get a dolly and like get help. Really? Yeah. Like a lot of books. Okay. I'm, I'm inspired because I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by books. Yeah. It's like, it, it's like, I mean, keep the ones you really want. And then the other ones, you know, I was pretty unforgiving. It was like, what, do I really need this? Is it like really right. important to me to have so what, this? What did you, did you keep like old, like, did you keep, you know, Moby Dick and you know, the ones you read in college that are some of sitting that, there? Some of that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really based on whether or not the author moves me right and like is are you re- writing a book right now uh yeah i mean yeah i've been working on this weird memoir thing that i'm going to start to oh yeah about. i love that i read the first chapter yeah i don't know what it is i don't know what you know i don't know if it's a full book or if it's some sort of weird digital thing or you know but i've been working on that all spring and it's then hilarious i love this we have to talk about the suspenders yeah oh yeah <laughs> my, my sixth grade suspenders <laughs> So what were you thinking? Like, had you just seen Paper Moon or something? The Ryan O'Neill suspenders? <laughs> no, it was like nothing that sophisticated. It was. <laughs> I think I was new to Indiana. We had moved there when I was in sixth grade. From where? From Milwaukee. Huh. And you know, culturally, it was different. It was still Midwest, but like the you know the for the for the, for the things that are important to little boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were different places. Like in Milwaukee, it was this Germanic culture. Uh, Northern European culture that was, you know, like soccer was the thing in the town that I was from. And I grew mm-hmm. up playing and like that was the big sport. Everyone went to the soccer games. And then you get to Indiana and it's basketball and football. 
So I showed up and I didn't realize that. And I, I guess I wanted to make some sort of impression. My mom took me out shopping for like a back to school outfit. <laughs> so like, I, I remember I had khaki pants, a blue shirt, and then I, I bought yellow suspenders. And I wore soccer shoes, and I got teased like mercilessly. I remember. Uh, wait, what grade? This is sixth grade. Sixth grade, spiked hair, you know the whole thing. It was bad. <laughs> so you were in the store with your mom, and you were like, "I need these susp- these yellow suspenders." Mom. Yes, and she had, they had just moved me, so my parents were like ultra nice that summer. It was like they felt <laughs> terrible for having moved us. We were all traumatized. She was like, "Honey, you can have the suspenders, whatever makes you comfortable." <laughs> you know? Do you have a photo of yourself in those suspenders? <sighs> Maybe somewhere. I don't, you know, I, I can't recall. But uh, So was that the first day of school you broke out the suspenders? Day one. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then how did that, what happened the rest of the year? Like, how did that affect? Uh, you just broke up. What did you say? How did it affect uh, how, what? How did it affect the rest of the year? Did you make friends? Yeah, I mean, yeah, slowly. It was a slow process. But, I mean, it was, I know I never wore them again. I'll tell you that much. And, uh, what happened was, uh, you know, it's just like any kid moving to a new town. Um, you know, it takes time. And I think at the end of the first full school year, I was obviously in better situation, but I don't think I really felt like I was at home until like the end of year two. Wow. Uh, It took, it was a big adjustment, you know, it was a big adjustment. And it was like, right when you're entering junior high and it was all weird, you know? Right. (laughs) Wow. That's, That's sweet. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's sort of funny in hindsight, but it's also like, what in the what in the hell was I thinking? You know, right? But so, what did it say in that diary entry? I can't. It was, it was something you were comparing something to the day. You were, oh, you were comparing. Were you comparing like a day at work or something to that day in the suspenders? I can't remember what it said in the diary entry. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was funny. Whatever it was, it was incredibly funny. Yeah, well, you it was know. good. And then oh, and then you were excited because you mailed something to what celebrity? You had overnight cigarettes for somebody in Canada. Oh, Mike Myers, yeah. Oh, Mike Myers. Austin Powers. That <laughs> <laughs> was one of my, uh, yeah, one of my glorious tasks as an intern back in the day. Right, addressing an envelope to Mike Myers. So, yeah, so um, strange days, my youth. I'm writing this thing or assembling this thing, and I feel like the interview is now about me somehow. We, we need to get back yeah. to you. Well, maybe you're more interesting to me than me. So. <laughs> I, I think you are more interesting to me than me. I'm I sick just, of me. I'm, I'm a babbler. You know, I'm a babbler. I'm, I'm kind done of, with me, man. I'm over. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm over me. I want uh, I want our listeners to get a sense, though, of, like, you know, your whole situation. Like, you, unlike me, you know, I was raised in uh, the Midwest under leaden skies, drizzling, freezing rain. Like, you were raised in Santa Barbara correct? Right. Which, yeah. which seems, seems to me like the most ideal place to grow up. I cannot even imagine how great childhood must have been with those mountains and that ocean and everything. And yet you still probably had the same sort of weird angst that anybody has when they're adolescent and you wanted to get out of there, right? Or like, this place yeah. sucks. Yeah. I mean, when I, was, when I was born in Boston and then we lived in Ann Arbor, Oh, okay. And then we moved to Santa Barbara when I was seven. Oh, okay. And so when I got there, it was, so when I was in Ann Arbor, I had no friends. My, my, well, I had one friend. It was this 70, I think she was 72 or 75-year-old woman across the street. <laughs> and my best friend was an old lady, and I had no other friends. And so I would kind of hang out with my mom, follow her around, and I would hang out with the old lady across the street, and I didn't have anyone. And then we moved to California, and it was just so sunny. I mean, it was just 
so bright and you know it was just this great place and I suddenly had tons of friends so for me it was like I always did feel like slightly outside of it looking in and I I feel there's a way in which I did appreciate it just because I'd come from this place with just me and a little old lady hanging out uh, drinking tea and eating cheesies so I was yeah so I was really happy in California but when I left so I always left California but when I left for college I thought I would never go back to Santa Barbara. I mean, I was done with, I mean, it's a pretty small town. Where did you go to college? I went to Berkeley. Okay. So it was up in the Bay Area, and it was great up there, and I loved it up there. And when I got up there, I thought, oh, this is, this is home. This is so great. So, yeah, but growing up in California, I mean, we were, I mean, we were the freaks in our neighborhood because, like I said, we had this, my mother decided that she quit being a housewife and she, that, you know, my sister and I had to clean the house and get ourselves places and, you know, we had to get somewhere. We had to get on a bus or hitchhike or whatever, ride a bike. Well, so your mom just, she just was hands off? She was like, there was kind of like no rules type situation? Raise yourselves? Yeah. Well, she pulled, I was, I was, I guess, eight. Was I eight? Yeah, I was eight. My brother was five. I was seven. Maybe I was seven or eight. My brother was five, and my sister was 11, and she pulled my sister and I over, and she said, I quit. And I said, what do you mean you quit? And she smoked. She chain smoked all the time. And she said, I quit being a housewife. <laughs> and I said, you can do that? And she said, yeah, I just did. I quit. And I said, so what do we do? <laughs> you know. So then she gave my sister and I this tour of the house. I mean, and this is in my book. It's fictionalized in the book, but it really actually kind of went down exactly the way it goes down in the book. But she gave us this tour of the house, and it started with the washer and dryer. And I was always a small kid. I was always the shortest. In the, I mean, I was just like this tiny little person. So it started with the washer and dryer, and she's showing me the washer and dryer and showing us how to do laundry. And I just started looking at it just thinking, how am I ever going to figure this machine out? Like, it was just this giant, noisy machine, and it was so terrifying to me. You know, and so we started there, and then she showed us, like, the mop and the and she showed us the broom, and she showed us Comet and sponges, and then she showed us how to use the kitchen and how to make dinner and how to pack a lunch. And and the last thing she showed us was an alarm clock that she put in each of our rooms. And she said, so now you have to get yourself up and get your brother up and, you know, make breakfast and pack your lunch and get yourself to school every day. I'm not getting up anymore. Wow. So. And how old were you at this happened? I was eight. Holy shit. So what does your dad think? Oh, yeah, so my brother was three, because I was eight, my brother was three, and my sister was 11. And she was done with him, too? Like, you had to take care of him? We did have to take care of him. He got, I mean, I think he was three, so we went to school, and I guess she was there, but I think he went to some woman's house two days a week, but he didn't like that woman. But when we got home, you know, we'd get him a snack, and we would read to him, you know, we'd do whatever. So, yeah, and then as he got older, we took care of him. More, but he, um, you know, like when he got to school, went to school age. So it was like that. So it just, so it started out this really normal looking family in this tidy house and, you know, and everything appeared, you know, more or less normal. Although my mother was not like the other women in the neighborhood. I mean, my friend's mothers had pantsuits and like hair salon hair and, you know, and they wore kids or something, you know, and my mother was like, had hairy armpits and she didn't wear underpants and she didn't wear a bra, you know, and her boobs would be showing out the side of her shirt and she went to the nude beach and she only swam naked and she smoked pot and my parents grew pot in the backyard. So, so they, were, they were hippies? They weren't really hippies. My father was an English professor 
And my mother, she was getting an MFA around the time she quit, I think. I mean, they were kind of hippies, but they were sort of, you know, they had three kids, and my dad had this, you know, somewhat conventional job. So they weren't total, and we lived in this very conventional California neighborhood. I mean, it looked like, you know, an E.T., that neighborhood where Elliot lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, it looked just like that. So we lived in this really conventional place, and then we're in school school with these kids where every, you know, all the mothers stay home, nobody's divorced, nobody's smoking pot in that neighborhood. And here we were, like, first of all, we were Jewish and nobody else was Jewish. And then we were like the freaks with like the hairy armpit nudist mother (laughs) and, you know, and the smell of pot in the house. And then, you know, when she quit, it was like, we sent, my sister and I just didn't clean that house. I mean, it just got messier and messier and my brother had a pet bird that perched on this wrought iron curtain rod over the family room couch and the bird just shit on the couch and the the family room couch was just covered with shit i mean just like layers and layers and layers of shit it was like some sea creature you know a little crustacean with these things growing on what kind of bird was this was this like a parrot he was a cockatiel. He was okay. a yellow cockatiel named Ace. <laughs> so it was just like, so the mat, it was just like, you know, and there's pot in the yard. I mean, it was just like, you kind of barrel, you know, nobody had sheets on their bed. I, I never could figure out that washer and dryer, so I, I just didn't do laundry. So in fourth grade, I wore the same brown cord pants to school every single day. And when they got, they, the holes would, you know, wear into them. And I would ride my bike down to TGMY, and I'd buy iron-on patches. And then I could iron on these patches and just patch it up. But I wore them the whole year, and nobody ever said anything. No one and then said I a had word. A, no, no one said a word. I mean, my parents, I don't even know if they noticed. And then I had a flute recital, because I took flute lessons. And I went to the recital, and I wore my brown cords that I wore every single day the entire school year with all the patches on it. And I just put on a white blouse. I thought, oh, it's my recital. I should put on a blouse. And I put on a white blouse, and my best friend, her house was just like the most normal, organized, tidy house in the world. Like her mother had a calendar on the refrigerator that said what they were going to have for dinner every single day of that month. And it had like the main course, the side dish, the dessert. You know, I mean, it was just like they were so organized. So her dad took a picture of me at this recital. And it wasn't until I saw, he hand, gave me the picture, like, I, you know, you had to develop pictures then, so I don't know how much long later it was. But whenever he handed me that picture, that was the day where I had, where I could see myself. And I looked at this picture, and there's me in my brown corduroys with patches all over them, and a white blouse and my stringy brown hair just hanging in my eyes. And there's, like, you know, four little girls with, like, party dresses, white socks, shiny shoes, and curls and bows in their hair and, like, four boys with jackets and ties on. And so it wasn't until I looked at that picture, I thought, oh, you know, yeah. it feels a little different than everyone else. <laughs> like, oh. yeah. So, so, well, got, yeah, so got, that got, was my childhood. It was crazy. Well, but so, okay, so your mom, I mean, and, like, the formality, with what's, what's sort of, like, uh, crazy about it is, like, the formality with which, and the finality with which your mother quit. Like, you, you keep referring to it as, like, when she quit. Like, it's like she yeah. quit a job. She was like, I'm done. I'm, right. I'm resigning. You know? mm-hmm. like, and so wh- what I wonder is then, what was your dad doing all this time? And, like, how did he respond? I mean, was he part of this? Or was he just kind of, like, doing his thing at the school and teaching? And He was, you know, I mean, dads at the time didn't do much domestic work. So, you know, their role was, you, you know, you go to 
work and you earn money and you support the family. So he did that. So I don't know if it occurred to either one of them that he might pick it up where she left off, but he didn't. I mean, he just did his thing. He, they were both very affectionate and very loving. So he would go to work and he would come home and the house is a mess and there's bird shit on the couch and my brother would get so dirty, his neck would have like this, like near his clavicles, it would have like these dark brown spots and he'd be barefoot all week and the bottom of his feet would be black. And, you know, I mean, it was just like chaos. And he was just, he was kind of oblivious. He'd come in, he'd hug me and kiss me and he'd, he'd you know, snuggle. And, we'd, you know, it was just, they were very, fat. you know, my mother would come home from wherever she was. She had an art studio and she would go to her studio and work and she'd go to the nude beach. Whatever, she'd come home and they'd hug us and kiss us. And they, they were... They loved us, and they made it clear that they loved us, but they weren't keeping track of anything. Right. And so I don't know if he, I guess it didn't even occur to him to, like, kind of pick it up somewhere. It just wasn't happening. You know, and we had, everywhere we had to go, like, I was getting allergy shots as a kid. I had to go to the doctor twice a week and get shots, and I'd get on my bike, and I'd ride to the doctor, and I'd get shots. And dental appointment, the dentist, too, we'd get on our bikes, and we'd ride to the dentist, and we'd go to the dentist. I mean, my mother must have made those appointments. And she must have told me that morning for school, you have a dentist appointment today, go to the dentist. Yeah. But we essentially just got where we had to go and you were self what we you, had were, to do. you were more self-sufficient than the average 10-year-old. I mean... Yeah. I mean, my sister would do things. I mean, I mean, in my not, the novel is a fictionalized account of this craziness, you know, going all the way forward into life through affairs and addictions and all that kind of stuff. But um, in the novel, the mother doesn't cook dinner. And when my mother first quit, she did quit cooking dinner. She said, you, go, you girls have to cook dinner. I was so bad at it. Nobody, I did it once and nobody wanted me to do it again. <laughs> and my sister was really good at it. But I don't know, for whatever reason, it, that didn't work out. And my mother, in, in reality, she came home every day and made dinner. And we would sit down and we had dinner together as a family every single night. And we'd sit there and we'd talk and we'd crack up and we'd laugh. I mean, we'd crack each other up. We still, we get together now and we still just we are in hysterics, just laughing the whole... Like, nobody can take anything seriously in my family. So, in reality, we'd get have dinner together every night, and it was this great thing. And then my sister and I, of course, would set the table, clear the table, do the dishes, you know, and all that stuff. Um, but in the novel, I had the kids cook dinner. I was just... I was kind of taking it one step further. So... Well, now, but in reality, we had, we had dinner. So were you, they did that. Were you ever angry? I mean, were you ever, like, mad at your mom when you were a kid because you had to do more stuff? Or was it basically just like, oh, this is the way that it is, and it's good otherwise? Or, you know, how did, how did you react internally? I was just, this is the way it is. And, and, I mean, theoretically, we had to do more stuff, but we didn't do it. You know, I just didn't do laundry. I just <laughs> didn't vacuum. I, mean, I just didn't clean the kitchen. And the kitchen floor, it was a white kitchen floor. Oh, my God. And essentially, it was it turned black. It was like black. You know when you look at sidewalk gum that's black? It's that kind of like matte dull. Uh, I mean, that's what the kitchen floor looked like. I mean, how, it was... How did they tolerate this? I mean, how you... I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you know what I'm saying? When people can, can when people can tolerate, like, uh, messiness, and, and not even that level of messiness, but that's a part right. of me. I cannot understand how somebody could just live in a place where it's like, oh, yeah, it's filthy. You know, like, there's... Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it was almost like they didn't see it. They were both... You know, my mother would go to her studio, and she'd paint, and she'd friends, and she'd go out, you know, and he worked a lot. My dad writes books, and he's writing. I mean, they were both, I don't know. I mean, the, the interesting thing is now, 
my mother has a cleaning lady now, and her house is clean. I mean, now everybody's gone, and the house is clean. Uh-huh. And my dad has a very, very clean girlfriend. So, and his house is spotless. But his office, he has an office in their apartment, is kind of like our house when we were growing up. I mean, it's just so much shit that I walk in, it's like you can't even breathe. It's like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my mind this you know you feel like you're, it feels claustrophobic well no and like this is but this brings up an interesting thought in my mind where i remember reading something uh in the news somewhere online i'm sure it was like in some at some newspaper and uh it was basically a story about cleanliness uh, versus messiness and how people who are messy and, and disorganized actually tend to be more intelligent than people who insist on having everything neat because people who are messy and who can tolerate a level of disorganization have a more flexible mind and oh. they can remember stuff. You know, it's like one of those people who's right. got like this disaster of an office, but they kind of know where everything right. is. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I have to say both my parents are incredibly smart people. I mean, they, they always were just like the sharpest, smartest people. But yeah, I know. But my reaction to it is like, I cannot bear. I mean, I, when I lived with it as a kid, you, I just didn't think about it much. And so you asked how I took it. I mean, it was sort of like, this is the way. I mean, it was a pain in the ass riding my bike and taking buses and hitchhiking. Like it would have. I guess the thing I would have wanted most was just to be get get a ride somewhere. Like, eh, can you just take me here? But you know, we couldn't. <laughs> so I mean, but other than that, it was like I had lots of friends. I was really happy. We'd ride our bikes to the beach every weekend, and then oh, when I was older, God. we'd go after school every day. I mean. I was incredibly happy and had tons of friends and had this whole sort of world life outside of the house. And I, and, and I didn't have to, like, you know, they didn't look at report cards. They didn't go to parent-teacher meetings. At the beginning of every year, uh, we'd each have to write a note and sign their name so that we would have our, our version of their signature on file so that they didn't have to write notes or talk to teachers. <laughs> so we did that, at, you know, we all had to do that every year. I was like, write the note and sign my name as you want to look. You know, so we did that every year. So they didn't check on us at school. I mean, amazingly, we all got great grades and did really well in school. Like, it didn't occur to me not to get good grades. It didn't occur to me not to go to class. So we did fine. But, okay, so anyway, so I was fine. But my sister, you know, so you ask how we My sister was, she hated it. Like, she was angry and she was pissed off. And so she, and she was also the tidiest person. She actually did her laundry and changed her sheets and, you know, and she wouldn't bring friends home because of the mess. She was too embarrassed by the house. So she would never bring friends over. So it was, you know, we all three had different reactions. And my brother, my, I feel like my sister and I sheltered my brother from it. Like he was in this little cocoon that we created. So he, because my parents used to fight all the time too. And they'd have these really violent fights. You know, like I remember walking in the house one day and there were dishes flying down the hallway, smashing against the wall. And my mother was emptying the dishwasher and then sort of frisbee throwing the plates down the wall, down the hallway. You know, so even, even when she's emptying the dishwasher, she's making a mess. I mean, she's... <laughs> well, I don't think she... Yeah. Right. I mean, she wouldn't normally empty the dishwasher. I did that. But yeah, for whatever reason, she opened the dishwasher and she's throwing all the plates and breaking all the dishes. So... You know, we went through a lot of dishes in the house. I mean, they had these really intense... Sorry, my phone is beeping. Somebody's trying to call. Obviously, I'm going to ignore it, but I know it beeps out. But they had these really intense fights. And my sister would, like, feel it all. Like, whatever they felt, she would feel. And you could see it on her face. So if they were fighting, she would feel it, and she'd be carrying it around, and it was just torturous for her. Whereas I somehow was able to, like, 
sort of float away and detach. Like I was incredibly emotionally detached from what was going on with them. And so I was just fine. And then my brother, my sister and I would, you know, take him out of the house and protect him. You know, so he was shielded from a lot. So we had, so in a way we had three different childhoods because we experienced it differently. Well, and then how did you all turn out? I'm curious. I mean, did you, how did it all kind of manifest as you got into your adolescence and adult years? Um, in high school, I mean, I had a boyfriend and I, my sister was anorexic in high school. She was on the gymnastics team and she was like star gym, gymnast, you know, and really good student in straight A and then she was anorexic. I, like, had tons of, you know, I had friends and a boyfriend. I was fine. My brother was, like, Mr. Straight and Narrow. Like, you you cannot smoke marijuana. It's against the law. You know, like, really straight <laughs> and rigid. And he was in junior statesman, and he was, like, straight A and president of this and that. And, yeah, he was, like, really straight. And then in college, my sister started, I think my sister and I both went a little crazy in college, and we both were doing way more things than was healthy at the time. Sure. And my brother, he was still productive and, you know, he, maybe he started smoking pot or something in college, but he was, he, he relaxed a little bit, but he was still, you know, the guy who started the film club at his university and, you know, he's that kind of guy. And then post all that, um, you know, my sister had, my, I would say my sister had the hardest things to go through, you know, including rehab and, you know, she had she went through the hardest stuff and she went through the most shit. But at this point in her life, she's probably the most together person I know. Like she's incredibly sane. Well, but you know, I, she does yoga every day. She's really healthy. She's just very. She's come out at the other end like a way better person than than most of us. Well, like she, I mean, she had to confront all her demons, and like it just makes it it kind of makes sense to me because she, as the oldest, she was the oldest, correct? Yeah, she was the oldest. Yeah, so like as the oldest, maybe she and and I guess a lot of it's just like emotional wiring or whatever. But um, did you think she felt like maybe a stronger sense of having to like take the reins or be responsible or take care of you and your brother? Does it was was there anything like that you think that she was dealing with her? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, she was definitely the one who was in therapy the longest, the most, you know, and the most upset. But I think it was more that first child thing. I mean, you have your first baby now, yeah. and I have two kids. But I think there's this weird thing with your first child where, you know, I mentioned E.T., the neighborhood where Elliot lived. Do you remember the movie well? Uh, I mean, yeah, I have I have a pretty decent visual memory now, of it. Do you remember how whatever, um, when E.T. was sick, Elliot was sick, like, when they just felt each other, whatever E.T. felt, Elliot felt. So yeah. When E.T. was dying, Elliot was dying. I think with your first kid, I feel like it's like that. Like my first kid, my older daughter, it's like whatever I feel, if you know, however it broadcasts on my face, even if I'm hiding it, She's reflecting it, internalizing it, and feeling it. And, you know, and there's this, you know, mirroring back at each other where, you know, I can feel whatever she feels. Like, if she's in pain for whatever, I'm in extraordinary pain. Like, I feel whatever she feels, and she feels whatever I feel. And I feel with the second child, you kind of, like, let that go. It doesn't really happen. And so, you'll, you know, when you guys have another baby, you'll, you'll see it's like a different connection where you're not E.T. and Elliot. And so I think my sister was the firstborn. I think all the intensity my parents were feeling, which was a lot of rage at each other and a lot of frustration. I mean, just these violent fights. And, you know, whatever led my mother to quit, whatever she was feeling at the time, I think my sister had, had to carry all those feelings, and she felt everything. Yeah. So from this young age, she was, like, burdened with these really intense adult emotions. 
And so I think that's what she went through. And my brother and I didn't, we didn't carry those emotions around with us. So it was a little easier for us. Yeah, it sounded like you, I mean, it sounded like for whatever reason, you had kind of an uh, an easier time of it. I mean, you, the middle child, you you were able to detach. I mean, you, yeah. you don't know yeah. why, why, though. I mean, do you think it's just like the luck of genetics and the way you're wired or the... Yeah, I think it's part genetics and part birth order. I mean, I think when I was born, you know, my sister, my parent, mother got pregnant at 20 when she was in college with my sister, and it was this intense thing when she was born, and, you know, and they had all this you know, stare. my mother said my dad used to go to nursery school and watch my sister through the one-way glass. By the time I came along, they weren't even taking pictures of me. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, so there's no... So it was a different kind of intensity, which wasn't intense at all. So I think that it just... I think part of it's genetics. I mean, they said I came out smiling, and they would put me in front of the toaster, and I would look at my reflection and just smile all day. <laughs> so I was just this happy, content person. And I think in general, that's kind of been true my whole life. I mean, obviously, if there's horrible things that have, you know, things have happened, and I, and I feel things beyond happy and content. But in general, it, it was easier for me to just to detach and slide into that, like, I'm just going to go to the beach with my friends while you throw dishes down the hallway. Yeah. Whereas my sister would be standing in the hallway, like, crying and screaming, like, stop it, mom! Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, like, yeah, she yeah. would be interacting and reacting, and I would be like, eh, I'm out of here. Yeah. Right, and you would go to the, and you would go to the beach. I mean, this is like to get to get to the experience of youth. Like it really was that great. You could just ride your bike to the beach when you were in high yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. You just rode down the beach and hang out and bonfires. Yeah. What's that? You guys have like bonfires and stuff. Oh yeah, in high school we definitely had bonfires. We'd go down there and drink beer and have bonfires and you know, and we you know hung out with the surfers. So it's like oh my god, yeah. You wake up early in the morning, sometimes go to the beach, sleep, you know, they'd surf. And every time there was an earthquake, it's like school would empty. Everybody would just jump in their cars and go to the beach, and there'd just be these giant waves. And it was like always a great day when it was an earthquake. It was <laughs> so huge. It's like the tsunami threat. It's the greatest. Yeah, thing it was just like great. It was like the best surfing. So yeah, so it was. It was this really. You know, I lost my virginity on the beach, and I mean, it's like all big things happened on the beach. Oh my god! So you dated a lot, I and mean, you had like a, an active dating life in high school too. Yeah, I dated, and I had boyfriend. Yeah, so I mean, my sister hated me too in high school. I mean, now we're incredibly close, and we love each other. And of course, we always loved each other. But I, I found her diary once when I was in high school, and I opened it, and the first page of it said, "I hate Jessica. No, <laughs> I really hate her." <laughs> that was the first page of her diary. So she loathed me. I mean, she was smaller than I. And then in high school, you know, she was a gymnast, so they were just like those lean, no body fat, you know, and then she was anorexic. So I had boobs before her, I had hips before her, I had my period before her. I mean, okay, we'll just start with breasts. So I remember when my breasts started to come in. Like, I don't know if you know this about girls, but when your breasts start to come in, you get this like sore, like garbanzo bean under your nipple, like it just hurts. And you ru- and if you touch it, it's like this lump, this rock there. I did not know so, this. Yeah, and so that's how when your breasts, like, you get this hard lump. I don't know what that lump is, but it's like a stone, like a hard garbanzo vein under your nipple. So I remember I was sitting on my bed in my underpants, and I'm touching it, and I'm like, and it hurts. I'm like, God, what is that? And so I called my sister, and I said, Becca, what is this? And she touched the lump under my nipple, and her, and I just remember looking at her face, and she was just enraged. She said, Mom! And my mom came in, and she said, what? And she said, Jesse, Jesse's developing. 
And she was so pissed because she hadn't started developing it. And she was just enraged. You know, it was like nothing was fair. And I started developing before her. How, how, how far apart were you guys? How many years Three apart? Three years apart. And you saw, oh, wow. So, yeah, that's unusual. So, that's crazy. Bone like, skinny. Yeah. And but, so then in high school, I was like, you know, I was a freshman when she was a senior. I was dating boys her class. And this uh, just did not go over well. That always you know, happened. That always happened. The, the, the freshman girls would come in and date the older guys. That was the way it went, right? Yeah. That's, well, they were, you know, at the time they seemed more interesting and they were like larger people. They were bigger. They had shoulders and everything. Well, no, but that's, I mean, I mean, when I was a freshman, because I didn't, my high, my high school was sophomore through senior, but even then, but when I, you know, when I was a freshman, I would look at seniors. They look like adults. Yeah. They were like, they look like full grown human people. Yeah. You I know? mean, like wait, when you're a freshman in high school, you're like a little kid still. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. Maybe not you. I was, I was, you know, scrawny and didn't know anything and. Um, right. I feel well, like the boys know. are. The freshman boys are. The girls are like sort of. I mean, that's why it's they're mismatched. The, the girls come in like sort of fully grown in ninth grade. Yeah. And you know, and if you match them up, they match better with the junior and senior boys. So. So you start yeah, so you start like dating that. when you started dating when you were a freshman. Like yeah, like seriously dating. Actually, like lost your virginity my, freshman year, that kind of thing. Yeah, I know. Isn't that awful? I did. Well, I'm just. I'm, yeah. I would. I would. I would see it as a badge of honor, personally. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I know, but I have two daughters now. And I don't. I want them to wait. You know. So. Yeah. But yeah, no. My first date. I got there freshman year, and my first date. So our school had this thing called Luscious Lester, and Luscious Lester was voted the cutest guy in the school, and so. This school was like, you know, it's like full of surfers. I mean, there were girls there who were actual models. I mean, it was just like this insane, you know, and I was like this little freckle What Jewish school? Thing. What school was it? Uh, actually, it was Katy Perry's high school. It was Dos Pueblos, DP, where Katy Perry went. Called Dos Pueblos? Dos Pueblos. Oh, Pueblos. Yeah, it's called DP. All right. So, um, so I, you know, so I showed up at this school and I... I mean, I did, and I still do think of myself as sort of funny looking, you know, I'm just like, cause there was just like these beautiful blonde tan people and I, and I think of myself as a sort of freckly, I it just, you know, I just look at myself and think, well, that's kind of a strange face. So, you know, so I show up at school and, you know, and I'm just like sort of astounded by these guys with these shoulders and these tans and these surfers. And then they have the luscious Lester competition and like the hottest six hottest guys in school stand up on the stage in the Greek theater and you vote for the hottest one who becomes is crowned luscious Lester king of the school. This was sanctioned. This was sanctioned by the school. Yeah. It's sanctioned by the school and you become the official luscious Lester for the year. Like you are the king of the school. (laughs) So this guy gets voted luscious Lester and I'm looking at him like, God, you know, like it was like looking at Brad Pitt or something and me being, you know, I just was like, like just bowled over. I couldn't believe how cute these guys are. And then next thing you know, Luscious Lester asked me out on a date. And Whoa. I was, like, paralyzed with fear. I How did that happen? How did he do it? I was sitting at the Greek theater just hanging out. Like, the Greek theater was this big open theater where everybody hung out. And people used to smoke pot out there in the middle of the school day, too. Just have to point out how strange things it were. Yeah. And I was sitting out there, and he came, and he sat down next to me, and he was just, like, chatting with me and... You know, we're just talking, and I'm, and the whole time I'm talking to him, and I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing, like, a choker with, like, a white flower in the center of it and an OP shirt. 
And, uh, you know, and I was really brown. I was very tan because I went to the beach all the time. And I was sitting out there, and he was talking to me, and I just remember the whole time thinking, oh, I can't believe I'm talking to Lester, Lester. I can't believe Lester, Lester was talking. You know, I was like this internal monologue in my head, like, oh, my God, Lester, Lester. Like, I can't wait to tell my friend. I was like, I can't wait to tell Rena Lester, Lester was talking to me. You know, I'm like freaking out. You know, and I thought that was it. And then I got home that day, and I got a phone call, and it was him. He said, do you want to go out? And I said, sure. And so he said, okay, I'll pick you up Friday or something. I said, okay. So we hung up. And I immediately called one of my good friends. She had an older sister who was a homecoming princess and was Luscious Lester's grade. And I, I couldn't tell my own sister because my own sister would be so pissed. She would have just killed me. So I called my friend's house and my friend's sister, her name was Lisa, and she was like, you know, one of the most popular girls. She was senior. I said, Lisa, I have a date with Brian. I won't say his last name. Brian G. And Oh my God! What am I supposed to do? And she had she had this voice. She talked like this. She had this baby voice like that. Uh-huh. Everybody loved her voice. <laughs> and she said to me, "Do you have any white pants?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Okay, wear those." And then she said, "Do you have familaris?" That was the kind of shoe everybody was wearing. And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Okay, wear your familaris." And I said, "Okay." And then she said, and come over here and I'll give you a blue and white striped sailor top. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so that was her advice for the date. So I wore what she said and I went on the date and I was so scared I couldn't speak. I was like, I just couldn't talk. And he took me to the drive-in in his big station wagon. This and is like happy me. days. You went to the drive-in? Yeah, there's a drive-in in Santa Barbara. I think it might still be there, actually. Oh, my God. And we went to the drive-in, and he had a case of Lowenbrow in the back seat. And he gave me, and I never had a beer, and he gave me a Lowenbrow, and I drank it. And I was, like, really full and kind of drunk. And, you know, we made out. And then we came home, and we made out some more, and he kept sticking my hand on his dick on, over his jeans. Oh, my God. This guy's and a pro. I had only just made out at this point yeah. like with my eighth-grade boyfriend. He keeps sticking his hand on my, my hand on his dick. And it was so hot, and I just that, that heat just startled me. Like, I just couldn't believe how much heat was coming out of there. And it, also the hardness kind of freaked me out. I was like, wow. Like, I just had no idea what a dick would feel like through James. <laughs> right. You know, it was just so kind of mind-blowing. I was like, wow. That's not a garbanzo bean. <laughs> no, it was just like, whoa. You know, so I kind of forget. And then he asked me out again, and we made out again. He kept putting my hand on his dick, but I kept pulling it away, and I could never talk. And oh, the next time we went out, we went out on a boat. We went to the harbor and we took a boat out and sailed around. So that's what you did in high school. I mean, this is like yeah. killing me. You have to realize, yeah. like, what did we do? We drove around in circles and went to Steak and Shake. <laughs> like, no, we went. To, I mean, it was like that. Yeah, we went to the harbor. We took out a boat and we sailed around. Ugh. It was just like so. Yeah, and then he didn't ask me out again after that. But I think what happened is that. It was sort of like Marla Maples or, you know, Donald Trump. It's like once you get christened by someone, you're christened. You know what I mean? So I think the fact that I went out with Luscious Lester, suddenly I was deemed somebody to go out with or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you were like a a made woman. That was it. Yeah. That's what it was like. I mean, because, I mean, I was tan and whatever, but I don't, you know, I looked, I think I look exactly like I look today. It was like there were these beautiful blonde girls, but somehow I fell into this category of, of dateable or whatever. So, yeah, so that was it. And then I had, then I went out with another surfer tennis player and, uh, yeah. And I remember seeing his dick the first time. Can we talk about this? On sure. Here? Of course. I, prefer- so I remember seeing his dick the first time and it was sticking straight up. <laughs> and I swear to God, I it was like, he was an alien. I had no idea they stuck up. <laughs> and I was just like, I just 
expected, you know, because my parents would swim naked and their friends would swim naked, so I'd seen a lot of penises, and they were always, like, dangling or buried in pubic hair or, you know, whatever, like, right. flopping around. I'd never seen a hard dick, and I just had no idea that's what they would look like. And I just remember looking at it and just, I swear to God, it was like the guy was a lizard or something. I just could not <laughs> believe this is what it looked like. I just looked at his dick and I was like, whoa, whoa. You know, and I said something like, whoa, it's standing up. And he said, yeah, that's what they do. I was like, whoa. It was just like, whoa. You know, it was it was totally bizarre. But anyway, yeah, how did we even get to this? Uh, you know, so, it happens. But, you know, it sounds like you had like a rich high school experience. I mean, I just like, I'm floored by this. That You know, it's so different from my, uh, I just remember walking the halls nervously. That's all I remember. I guess, and I get <laughs> I think nervous I, about what I, everything, but to be honest with you, like, I think people would argue I shouldn't be too self-deprecating because I mean, I did fine in high school and, you know, I don't think anybody who knew me, maybe unless they knew me really well would say uh-huh. that, that was how I was, but that was how I felt, you know, like right. everyone always is like, what were you like when you were in high school? And I was like, I always say nervous. You know? right. Yeah. <laughs> I was well, like, that was your internal self, but yeah. were you like cool and popular on the external self? I, I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. I was like, uh, I was very social. I mean, I had a lot of friends. I did fine. I just like, I, I was not sure of myself. I, I still don't know if I am, but it was especially heightened by, you know, back then. Right. Um, so like, okay, so you, you get out of high school, you have good enough grades to get into Berkeley. You always, right. and you always wanted to be a writer or did it come? No, I didn't even think about it. You didn't? No. Right? Okay. No, so. I mean, I didn't think about what I wanted to be. I mean, I think that might be one of the results of our childhood. It's like, I didn't think about any future. It was just like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be, you know, it was just like having fun, you know, so I didn't think about it. And by the way, the way I got into Berkeley was... Um, I remember like I was waiting to hear, waiting to hear. And I finally called the admissions office, which I don't think you could even do now. And I called the woman. I said, did, did I get in? And she, she was the only place I applied. My parents didn't even know I applied. So I didn't even tell them I was applying to college. It was just this whole, like they were distracted. And I called the woman. I said, did I get in? And she said, you did get in. And I just was shocked. And I said, I did. And she said, yeah, you got in from your essay. I said, really? And she said, yeah, you, I'd love your essay. And I'm letting you in because of your essay. I thought, wow. So it didn't even occur to me then that I should write, but that's how I got in was by whatever I wrote. Wow. And then what did you you major in? What did you study when you were there? I was a French major. So you speak fluent French? Yeah. Wow. I'm jealous. Yeah, so I was there. So it didn't even occur to me to write. I mean, I guess, I mean, you said you walked around nervous and, you know, on the outside you looked cheerful, happy. I mean, I think I always seemed cheerful, happy, and I walked around insecure. or I mean, not totally insecure. Not like I remember certain girls at school who were really insecure and would do incredibly dumb things. Like Kristen, I won't say her last name, who slept with like all four of these brothers who were on the football team. I was like, that's insecure. You know, it was like, Whoa. I remember her crying to me in the locker room. She's like, I slept with all four of them. I won't say their last name. <laughs> brothers. And I remember looking at her saying, all four? She's like, yeah. I was like, at once, one at a time in a row. And it was just like, and she was like, I feel so awful. And I just, so I never was like that. But I think inside I was always like, you know, like, why is this, why is this person interested in me? Why are these, you know, I was always felt like slightly unsure. So, so writing, I, I mean, I was always a reader and my dad and, you know, there were tons of books in our house and my dad would always hand them to me and just say, read this. 
And he wouldn't ask me about it or ask me what I thought about it. He would just give me books and I would read it. I'd be like, okay, I'll read it. So I was always reading. And I remember reading a book. I remember being in Europe on a train and reading an Erica Jong book and thinking, God, would that be the coolest thing to be a writer? But it never occurred to me that I could do it. Like it, in a million years, I never would have thought that I would be somebody who could actually do that. So I didn't think about being a writer because I didn't think it was like a possibility for me. Like I didn't, I didn't know that I had what it takes, I guess. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I don't have what it takes. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> you are still deluded. No, I mean, I'm, I'm trying. I'm <laughs> trying really hard, but who knows? Well, but, and so, and so you have that thought. And then eventually you just start writing? I mean, you, you must have... Well, yeah, so then I graduated from college and I was in the buyer's training program for iMagnon, which is this very fancy department store um, that was in, based in San Francisco. And so I was in the buyer's training program for iMagnon and I was working there and it was like a lunatic asylum. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was this really sort of big deal store and I'm in the headquarters in San Francisco, and everybody who works there was insane. And so what happened is I came home from work one day. I had two days off, like one weekend day and one weekday. And I came home one weekday, and I just wrote the story about work. And I just wrote the story. And and that was it. And then, you know, and I didn't do anything. I just wrote it. And then another day, I, I lived um, in Oakland in a somewhat bad pretty bad area in Oakland. Another day I was at this corner and I was watching this drug deal go down and this little kid was there in the middle of this drug deal and I was watching this drug deal go down and then the light changed and I drove away and I wrote a story about that. And so I just wrote these stories just, I have no idea where it came from, just out of this impulse. You know, so I wrote up these stories by hand on a yellow legal pad and I had a friend who had graduated from college and was writing for a newspaper and I showed him one story and he read it and he said, it made me want to throw my typewriter out the window. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, it was so good. I could never write something like that. And I thought, really? Like, you think I can write? And so I'd never taken a writing class in my life. So that was sort of when the idea was planted in my head. And then I moved to Canada with my first husband, who was my college boyfriend. And I wasn't allowed to work or go to school. So I started just writing every day, like in secret. Wait, because it was like, wait, like, it, was like it was like uh, the Canadian law. You couldn't work or go to school, or you just like your husband would not allow you. <laughs> yeah, right. It was that was my visa. Like he had a work visa, and my entrance was contingent upon me not working or go to school. Like for whatever, I don't know why they wouldn't want me to contribute, but they were like, "No, you can't work or go to school." All right. So, in what part of Canada is this? Toronto or in Toronto? Yeah. Yeah. So we're there, and I'm, like, in the middle of this big city, and I didn't know anyone, and I'm, like, a housewife. I'm, like, cleaning the house. I mean, that house was spotless. You would have loved it, right? Yeah, you would have wanted yeah. to live in this house because, you know, no kids, and this husband was kind of, he was sort of tidy. It was spotless. You would have loved it. So I'm just, like, cleaning that house and doing laundry and picking weeds and planting flowers and going to the grocery store and, like, kind of losing my mind. Like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And I started writing, and I just noticed if I wrote, I would feel okay. I would be okay doing laundry and cleaning house and pulling, you know. And so I just started writing every day, and that's how it, it was like this secret thing. I didn't tell anyone. That's how it started. I just started doing it. So how long? Anyway. Did, how long did you write in this like apprentice phase before you started attempting to publish? Um, I guess like to well the first year I wrote I wrote everything and I didn't have a printer at home I put it all on a disc and I gave it to my husband 
I said, can you take this to work and print it? And he said, sure. And he took it to work, and I kept asking him to print it, and never did, never did. In the meantime, that computer died, and it's gone. It's thrown away, and everything's gone. And then finally, after months, I'm like, Scott, can you? I want to see what I wrote. Can you print it? And he said, well, I lost the disc. So the first year... Everything I wrote is gone, but I'm sure it was total shit. Yeah, you know, that's yeah, prob- prob- might be a good thing, you know. <laughs> like, I'm sure it was total shit. And then the next year, I, I, you know, I wrote stuff, and there was one short story that I sent out, and somebody walked in, and when I, I sent that story out, and it got published, and I was kind of like, whoa, I was shocked. Who published it? Yeah. Uh, a Canadian literary magazine called Errata. Not uh-huh. not e, not E R O T E R R A T T A or E R A T T A however you spell it, errata. Yeah. And so, um, and it got published, and it was like, whoa! I mean, I was just stunned. And then I wrote for another year, and then my marriage was falling apart, and I thought, oh, maybe I should go to graduate school. And so then I wrote for another year, and just got a couple of good stories together to apply for graduate school, and then I got into graduate school. So I would say it was three years of writing every day. It was one short story published out of all that three years of material, and then graduate school. Where and where you went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins? Yeah, at Johns Hopkins. So is that the only place that you applied, or did you apply to a bunch of them? I applied. I applied to like. I mean, I said to you know. I mean, the marriage was like you know kind of iffy, and it was like, well, if I get into a graduate school, will you go with me? Because I followed you to Canada. Will you go with me? And he was sick of the job and ready to leave, and he said yes. So it's okay, I'll only apply to the best schools, and if I get into a good one, I'll go. So I applied to, like, I think I applied to six schools, and I got into three, and then I went to Hopkins. Wow. And then he ended up not coming. And he ended up, yeah, he ended up staying, <laughs> staying in Toronto? Yeah, he ended up, yeah, he bailed at the last minute. Like, really, like two weeks before I left. And then you, uh, you wind up in uh, Baltimore? Baltimore. Right, yeah. By yourself, never had lived there before, obviously, and you're at graduate school, and... Uh, Take and I had a three-year-old baby. Oh, my God. And so take me from there to uh, when you finally got yourself, you got your novel published. I mean, how long did that process take you? So, okay, so then I'm in graduate school, which was the first time I ever would admit that I wrote. It was like, oh, my God, I guess I am a writer. And so then I'm writing for real graduate school, and I was writing short stories and writing short stories and getting them published. And... I guess I graduated in 95, and my first novel came out in 2008. So how many years is that? 13. 13 years. So in that 13 years, I had, I think, 25 short stories published. Okay. And I wrote wrote a novel straight out of graduate school, and some agent, like agents show up at Hopkins and try and find people. And so some agent came, and she was like, I want this novel. I'm going to sell it. And she was with this big deal New York agency. So she shopped it around to like eight people and it didn't sell. And that was it. And I didn't realize then that eight is like nothing. Like, wow, when you yeah. more than eight. <laughs> it's like scratching, <laughs> scratching the surface. Yeah, but she just shopped it eight and then that was it. And then it was just like that ended. So then I just thought, oh, I guess that novel sucks. And then I had a short story in some magazine and some woman who was like at Little Brown contacted me. And she's like, I love your short story. Do you have a novel? And I said, yes, I'm working on one. And I sort of barely was working on one, but I just said yes. And she said, great, I'll work with you. So I started working on this novel. And then I would send her bits of it, and she'd send me stuff back and forth. And essentially, it was a really bad novel. And I think what I was doing then, it was, it was, I was writing out of desperation. And I was also writing to please her. 
And so it was this really inauthentic writing, and it was really shitty, sucky. You know, so eventually she's like, okay, forget it. You're, this sucks. You suck. And so that ended. And so after that, I was at Breadloaf. Have you been there? No, 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 no. I've never done anything like that. But so I was at Breadloaf, and I was talking to this um, – this famous editor, she died recently. I can't remember her name, but she was famous. You know, in the editing world, she's famous. She's huge. She was like Simon Schuster or something. And I was talking to her, and she looked at this short story I wrote, and she said, oh, I love this story. It's great. And she said, but you have to have a novel. You have to have a novel. And I said, I do? And she said, yeah. Nobody, you know, unless you get this short story published in the New Yorker, you're like, you have to have a novel. And I said, well, I'm working on one now, which I wasn't. And she said, what's it called? And I said, the summer of naked swim parties. And she said, okay, great. Send it to me when you're done. So then... I left that meeting. I thought, well, I better fucking go write this novel now because I just came up with the title and I just told her I had it, but I didn't have it. So you just blurted out that title? I blurted, yeah, at the top of my head. That's actually, yeah. but it's actually a genius title. It's got summer in it. I mean, I'm, I'm breaking this down from a marketing perspective. But <laughs> yeah. It's got summer in it, so it's like beach read. There's naked, which is always nice to have in a title, and then parties. Right. What's wrong with yeah. that? Yeah, it was like that's a yeah, light, so that's a lightning was- bolt. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, so then I went and wrote that novel, and then that novel, you know, HarperCollins bought it, and that was it. So that was, yeah, so, okay, so between graduate school and where I am now, I published 25 stories. I probably wrote 75 stories, or maybe 175, I don't know, you know what I mean, but I published 25 stories. And I wrote two novels that nothing happened to, and then the third novel is really my, is my first novel. And then- my first novel is really my third novel. Yeah, and then you have uh, the latest and, one. Uh, and then my second novel, yeah, and then I have Drinking Closer to Home, which I started, I think I started, like, as soon as Summer of Naked Swim Parties was accepted for, you know, as soon as they bought it, I started the next book. So what, are you, then, so what are you working I, on now? Are you working on something else now, or are you still, or you just did kind of like a, a hiatus? No, I, today, I'm not, today I went to Starbucks and I finished a novel. No shit, today? Yeah, today. Yeah, wow. today I like finished it and I came home. Yeah, today. So and I've been working on it for over for two years. Right. For over two years. When Drinking Closer to Home was accepted, I started this novel that I finished today. What's it called? So it's been you know two years or two and a half years. So what's the name yeah. of it? What's it called? Well, I don't know, but I was thinking of Wonder Bread Summer. Yeah, the, there you go. Yeah, Wonder Bread Summer. You should throw it like. Wonder Bread Naked Summer, maybe. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's the Wonder Bread is not referring to actual Wonder Bread. It's referring to a bag of cocaine, a bag of Wonder Bread that's filled with cocaine. Oh, there you go. That, that's, so, oh, that's good, though. So, I mean, you have a drug reference. So we want to find something to really, like, excite the uh, the book buying yeah. public. You know, drugs, nudity, parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, in the first sentence you find out that the Wonder Bread, is, bread bag is filled with cocaine. So it's not... You know, it's not like Wonder Bread wholesome white bread. It's like, yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's that's where I am now. You got a book? Uh, did, you, did you have like a you have a book deal for it, or are you going to have to submit? I have. They have an option on it, but I don't have a contract, so okay. they get, you know, first look. Yeah, they get first look and just you know pray for me. You know, I All hope right. they love it. I hope they like it. I will. I will do that. And uh, it's been great talking to you. You're fun to talk to. You have great stories. I don't know why you were saying early on that you're boring or whatever. <laughs> I'm boring to me. I'm more, way more interested in you than me. Well, yeah. I, I, I think our listeners would uh, would disagree that this has been great. And I wish you all the luck with Wonder Bread Summer. 
summer summer of naked swim parties drinking closer to home both already on the shelf and available now jessica have a great day thank you it was great talking to you all right take care and hopefully i'll see you in la one day yeah let me know when you swing through town okay i will are we hanging up or we're we're hanging up and saying goodbye this is it say say your goodbyes (laughs) okay all right take care brad i'll talk to you soon all right bye-bye All right, there you have it. There's Jessica Anyablau. That's the show. That's her for the hour. She's pretty great. Great conversation. Interesting life. Interesting work. If you want to check her out on the web, www.jessicaanyablau.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Jessica Anyablau. Uh, I don't have much more than that. It's late at night. My brain is starting to fade. But I do have one additional thought relative to the whole cheap places to live thing that I was addressing at the top of the show. Uh... It occurs to me, I'm I'm trying to think of where this actually might happen, and I start to think about the Arab Spring that has been unfolding in the Middle East for like the past several months. And uh, Tunis, Tunisia, and then I guess Sana'a, Yemen, both would fall under that category, under the Arab Spring category. But I feel like, you know, if I were a betting man, Tunis seems like the more likely candidate, a little bit more stable in terms of the, uh, the government situation. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe we all pack up and move there. Maybe that's it. It's got a nice uh, Mediterranean proximity, decent weather, pro- probably fairly hot but sunny and, and coastal. And, uh, you know, uh, we could all go there and try to create some sort of hive mind, some sort of uh, movement, some sort of burgeoning artistic movement. Tunis. That's where I'm putting my money. That's where I'm guessing it could happen. Anyway, just a thought. Thank you for listening. Back again soon. Don't forget two new shows a week, Sundays and Wednesdays. That's the idea. If you have thoughts on the show, if you want to tell me a story, uh, offer criticism, offer praise, the email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. You can also tweet at me at otherpeoplepod. Okay, thank you. Appreciate you listening. Don't forget to take deep breaths. (laughs) 